The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit amazon.com slash pureleaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Dome Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. Hope everyone is staying safe and healthy as possible with Omicron everywhere. That being said, we have one of my most anticipated guests we've ever had, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr., but he doesn't like to be called doctor. He likes to be called professor and even though he asked Chris and myself to, uh, to, to to refer him as Skip, we couldn't. We just couldn't. And if you don't know Professor Gates, he's one of the most distinguished academics, documentarians, researchers. He is the professor at Harvard University, the director of Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research. He's the author of more than 20 books. We find out he's a, what is it, 59 honorary doctorates, Chris? <laughs> he has 59 honorary degrees. I was so intimidated by this dude. Yeah. I was so intimidated. He's uh, been distinguished as a MacArthur Fellow, which is known as the Genius Award. <laughs> right. An Emmy winner and the recipient of numerous other honors. Yeah. He's the, he's the man. And uh, Chris and I basically didn't speak too much. And that's the best podcast we've ever had because you get to listen to one of the great minds, one of the most uh, eloquent, articulate, almost, you know, one of those people with a photographic memory that never says they have a photographic memory because clearly he does. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But he's on the show because he's also among all of those amazing credits. The host and 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 uh, creator, I guess, of of finding your roots on PBS. It's like wildly successful show that you were on a couple of weeks ago. That's right. That's right. Um, check it out. I learned a lot. I, I learned a lot without revealing too much, but it was it was a hell of a thing to see my father's first menu in 1973. I learned a lot about my grandfather, my great grandfather, who lived in America in the 20s in the Great Depression as a Korean man in the deep south, like the deep, (laughs) deep fucking south. God, yeah. We don't go too much into it because I think we should leave it for the episode itself, but there there was a lot. And uh, I was so honored to be be a guest and to have his team spend over a year 
researching my family's wow. lineage and history. Actually, we didn't get into it. Can can we? So we won't give away too much from the actual show and the revelations. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because I I didn't I don't know this. Like, what was that process like? What did you give them? And then well, was it just like a year later they came back to you? They um you do take uh, at least a couple DNA tests to make sure everything matches, and you have backups. So that that gets sequenced, and then you give them as much information as you possibly have about your family and you just mm-hmm. give it all to them and that's it and then they just go sleuthing around and i had no idea i knew that my great grandfather lived in america for a little bit but i had no idea right one of the most remarkable things again we talk about it a little bit in this podcast when professor gates sort of again when i try to paraphrase what he actually told me and then he just states Word for word, what he actually told me, which is hilarious. <laughs> there's a there's a segment in this podcast that I find very funny, but you know, more or less, I translated to like you know, he asked me, "Do you have agency? Do you think you have personal agency over the decisions you've made in your life, or is it like genetics?" Right? And of course, I was like, "Yeah, you know, I'm sure there's going to be moments where it was genetics and DNA, and others are circumstance. It's nature versus nurture." I honestly don't know. I think that you have a default setting program we all do and then it's up to you to decide if that's like your standard programming or if you want more right you know you can choose to have poor vision or you can get prescription glasses right but the power of the default setting baked into you is is a uh, very strong and I, I i i know that now from my father from my mother's side that revealed a lot but i think what was most fascinating to me was my great-grandfather Came from a well-to-do family, lived in Japan. Both my grandfather and my great-grandfather were more Japanese than Korean. And he was a good student, and he won a scholarship. He got one of the first, um, one of the very, very first passports from Korea to go to America. And in 1925, took a steamboat from Kobe, Japan, where he lived, to uh, San Francisco. I saw the boat. I saw the manifest. I saw his train ticket to go to Arkansas, mm-hmm. you know, and then he goes to Emory, he goes to SMU, he's one of the first students at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. I read his uh, application to go to Yale for a seminary, for a theological. To study what? This is the crazy, this wasn't covered in the thing. Like, <laughs> study religion, yeah, this wasn't covered in the thing. He studied the same thing as you. This is insane. I was like, what? I, I couldn't believe it because yeah. I didn't know what he studied. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm, I see, they got everything. I'm reading his report cards. I'm reading his essays. This fucking guy taught himself how to write and teach. And he goes, his S-Y woo. Like, it was re- remarkable. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, uh, one of the essays he had was like, why he studied religion. That's it. I was like, and Professor Gates, I didn't, I didn't make it, but he asked me why I study religion. I was like, not because I am religious. I want to study why people are religious. That was like word for word what my great-grandfather wrote in like 1927 for Yale graduate school. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? That's fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. And I, I have more in me that I like, it, it, you know, he started a business in Detroit. Then he started one of the largest greenhouses in Cleveland, Ohio. Then he started another business in New York city with my great aunt. Then he found out his dad dies, comes back to Japan, uh, Korea. And he starts a wild boar hunting expedition company <laughs> in the mountains of Kesong, North Korea. 
wild fucking boar hunting. Wild shit. And to read the, his uh his obit from a soldier in 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 St. Louis, a former soldier in St. Louis dispatch who heard that he had died. It was just like riveting and moving and sad and exhilarating and all of these feelings. So I was I was blown away to to see that, you know, he was a very beloved man that died tragically. And there's a lot more to it, right? Like I, I won't go too deep into it, but it's like here was a he was like six foot three Korean man that spoke perfect English <laughs> and the American military's mobilizing forces in Korea. Who do you think they're going to ask for, yeah. for help? Yeah. I mean, j- just that resume of like, okay, Yale Divinity School, leading wild boar hunts, uh, opened a Chinese ornamental gardening shop. Like, this dude would be, would be the coolest motherfucker in 2022. <laughs> like, yeah, he's like a Wes Anderson character in the film or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I asked my mom. She didn't know about this. She had no idea about Dallas, Arkansas. She knew about Emory. But I always hear that, and you're like, that's a fucking lie. That must be a joke. You know what I mean? Yeah. Part of me is reluctant to 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 pull on the uh, 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 on the string a little bit and to to see what else is there because she, she, according to my mother, she said that my grandfather died in mysterious ways. It wasn't what people said it said happened. Mm-hmm. So it seemed to be a military accident. Who knows? But it's like wild and crazy so i didn't know this shit happened and i had no idea that my dad had a steakhouse a prime rib like a house of prime rib steakhouse yeah in washington dc and they gave you the menu which by the way once again would be like the coolest menu in 2022 it's so good no idea he did this and like to know that my dad's restaurant had to close because of nixon chinese tariff wars Hmm. It's like crazy shit, man. Yeah. Um, but I was honored to have Professor Gates's team dig up all the stuff that I had no idea. And when I say honor, I mean that because I understand just how privileged I am to have this opportunity that I think every single fucking person I know would kill to have this. I hope one day that this is something that is readily available for everybody. Well, let me ask you one thing before we get into the pod here. Because you, you talk about this a little bit in this interview, you talked about it on the show itself, but like before he approached you, before the show approached you to do this, you, like so many of us, were like pretty reluctant to tug at these threads with your family. You don't really ask questions, you don't dig too deep. But like now having had the experience of getting to see some of this stuff, would you suggest the rest of us like yeah, maybe well, try pulling on these threads a little bit more than we have? I mean, I know this is going to sound crazy, but it's like, I was left thinking that everybody loved high school. And then you learn, actually, most people hated high school. <laughs> and I always grew up thinking that most people come from happiness or whatever. Like they have a, it's not a, a family lineage born out of trauma and pain and mm-hmm. war and suffering. And then you're like, wait a second, like almost everybody did with the exception of the very few. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that we happen to highlight the very few more than and the highlight the exceptions to the rule. And if you think about it, at least for Asian people, the reason why we don't like talking about it is almost every single person that's come to this country as an immigrant, for the most part, came from horribleness. Mm-hmm. And I knew growing up that I had the Korean War that ravaged my family, my just destroyed my grandfather's like 
business. And like it just, everybody lost everything. Literally everybody lost everything. People died. I forget that they were refugees. You know what I mean? You, when we're, we talked to Deep Tran about being a, a refugee from Vietnam, and I'm always like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. So are my parents, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you forget about these things and you don't want to bring them up because it's just, it always ends in sadness. And in a, in a household where you don't like articulate such feelings to anybody or communicate or emote anything, the last thing you're going to say is, Hey, so what happened? What were you feeling like when, um, <laughs> this terrible event happened? What did it feel like when you lost sure. everything? What sure. did happen when, you know, X, Y, Z happened? You just don't talk about it. Um, and I know that a lot of people feel the same way. You don't have to be Asian. And I think it's one of the things I admire the most about the Jewish faith is that they celebrate that pain in a mm. way, right? They, ch- they don't cherish it, but it's something that is respected. And, and it's that it's, it's something that you, you talk about, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You commemorate it and you, you don't commemorate it. it. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and I think that's something, at least for myself and my family, we're just beginning to figure out how to do that. So I totally understand and empathize why people wouldn't want to talk about this. But at the same time, if you're my age in your 40s or if you're younger in your 30s and you're listening and you're an immigrant kid from another country, your parents are immigrating from another country, there's a good chance that this is your last chance of getting the story of what happened. Because once your parents or your aunts and uncles pass, it's going to be pretty goddamn hard to get those stories readily available to you because not everyone's going to have the privilege and opportunity that I had to have a team of like Harvard researchers dig through all the fucking, you know, archives around the world to figure this shit out. So, you know, I think it behooves you to go have the hard questions. And I'm not saying, you know, I had the, I didn't have the balls to do it, you know, but, but if I knew this, I do think I might've made different decisions in my life beforehand god damn you're talking right to me man i gotta do this oh man do it you're right man yeah man uh and and listen like professor gates who i'll never call skip in my life <laughs> um just 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 we're so so honored to have him and he's got in the next few weeks a comprehensive collection of essays by zora neil hurston He is featured in a new documentary, Frederick Douglass and Five Speeches, soon to be available on HBO and uh, on on PBS, Finding Your Roots. Uh, He's been doing that for the last 10 years, and the new season is out. Check it out. It's, it's, uh, It's pretty, pretty cool. Not just for myself, but for everyone else that, that, that gets to do this because it's, as Professor Gates says, like, you can't make this shit up, the reactions that people have. It is genuine and you are awestruck dumbstruck at the fact that your ancestors really believe it or not even if you don't think about it you we all came from something remarkable you know we all came from something remarkable somebody decided to do something remarkable for you to be here that's just a fucking fact amen you know at least here in america right somebody did something fucking remarkable you know someone decided they were going to make a change and take a chance and take an extraordinary risk or do something fucking bananas for you to be here. Let's get into it. 
here's someone way fucking smarter than <laughs> 10 of us combined. <laughs> 20 of us combined. He's the one person that is too smart to go to MIT. <laughs> Professor Henry Louis Gates. We're joined with uh, Dr. Professor. Do I call you doctor or professor? I, I got so nervous with the first time I met you. I never know because I don't want to call you Skip, but I have to. Um, professor. You know why professor. I like Professor? I like Professor. My brother, I have one brother who's five years older than I, and he's an oral surgeon, right? And I don't like being called doctor because I don't want to be on an airplane and somebody, <laughs> uh, they, they tap me on the shoulder and say, we have an emergency in road number 30. And I go back there and they think that I can save somebody's life. And I'm going to start praying with the guy saying, you know, you better pray that somebody went to medical school on here, man, because I can't help you. <laughs> right. Professor has lower emergency expectations. No one, on a plane. <laughs> no one on a plane is like, is anybody a professor? And you, you know, what's interesting is that in Europe, being a professor is a huge deal. It commands respect. I don't know about you guys in your age group, but when I was growing up, my parents never called my teachers in elementary school or high school by their first name. They were always Mr. McHenry. He was the only male teacher we had. Mrs. McDowell, Miss Smith. You know, being a teacher had gravitas. It was something, it was a place of honor in the community. But in America, it's doctor, 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 doctor. You go to so many schools, you think it's a liberal arts college. You think you're in the Mayo Clinic. There's so many doctors around. <laughs> but I like professor because I have a PhD and I actually have 59 honorary degrees, um, which is a miracle. And I'm, thank God for that. You know, it's, but um, I like being um, a professor um, because that's the that's my trade. You know, that's my occupation. That's the great tradition that I'm in. But you guys can call me Skip. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> Professor Gates. Though, hold on, you just, you just ran over something so quickly. You have 59 honorary degrees. Like, what is the most honorary degrees you've received in a calendar year? That is unreal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Satchel Paige, the great pitcher for the Negro Leagues. He, his, one of his favorite sayings was, "Don't look back. Something might be gaining on you." <laughs> but I'll tell you the ones that meant the most to me. Each one has been very special. But the first one, um, when I was a young professor, Dartmouth, um, one of the Ivy League schools, gave me my first honorary degree on my birthday. And I, it was one of the great days of my life. And then on May 22nd of this year, my alma mater, the University of Cambridge in England, awarded me an honorary degree. And I'm the first African-American male in the 800-year history of the University of Cambridge in Cambridge, England, to get an honorary degree. And then second black American, Jesse Norman, the great opera singer, got one in 1989. Uh, but that brought tears to my eyes, man. You know, having a place where you went to college. I went to Yale as an undergraduate, and then I got a Mellon Fellowship to go to England. And I, I was raised to be a doctor. You know, I don't know about uh, Korean families, but in black families, when I was growing up, you were going to be if you were a smart little boy or girl, you were going to be a doctor. And if you couldn't get to med school, then you could be a lawyer, right? My mother, God rest her soul, in heaven, she was she she thinks there's a father, son, the Holy Ghost, and a medical doctor. <laughs> but um, I went to England and I completely changed course. And I decided that I wanted to be a professor of 
um, literature. I have a PhD in English literature, but I wanted to focus on African American and African literature and culture. And, you know, I, when I, I came back, I told my parents I wasn't going to go to med school. My brother and the oldest cousin in my, in the Coleman family, my mother was a Coleman. They took me to the bowling alley. I grew up in a paper mill town in the hills of Eastern West Virginia, halfway between Pittsburgh and Washington, right? Everybody worked at the paper mill. And we had one hangout in the county seat five miles away. My town had 2,000 people in it, right? And the county seat had 7,500. It had the hangout, which was the bowling alley. And you could get beer at the bowling alley. So my cousin, Little Jim, and Rocky, my brother, they sat me down. We got um, draft beers. I didn't know what they wanted. And they said, we have brought you here for a reason. I said, why? They said, you ain't going to be no doc. You ain't going to be no English teacher. You idiot. You're going to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they said, David, they said, you can read novels on the weekend. <laughs> I said, no, I'm going to be a professor of English. They looked at me like I had lost my mind. When you talk to what, what does your brother say now? Does was he like should I have become an English professor too? Yeah, well, he was very. <laughs> he just retired. He moved to. He and his um, my sister in law Gemina um, moved to. Um, they were in New York. He was the chief of dentistry at Bronx Lebanon Hospital, and was the last dean of the Fairleigh Dickinson School of Dentistry for its last uh, year or two. And he's very very distinguished um, person, very successful. But his son, Aaron Gates just completed his first year of medical school. So um, my brother's happy with his, his career, but he, he's, <laughs> he's been very supportive. It took him a while to get the rhythm of my new life. And to, nobody thought, look, I was a graduate student between 73 and I got my PhD in 79. No one could envision that I would have a TV show <laughs> or be making documentaries. They thought I'd be uh, correcting people's uh, split infinitives and dangling participles at some at a community college somewhere. <laughs> so they meant well for me, but um, I think I showed them that there are many ways to skin a cat. And my parents were very, my father lived to be 97 and a half. And uh, my mom died in 1987. But by then, my career was pretty well launched and they were very pleased. So it was okay. I tell my students, I've been teaching since I was 26 and I'm 71. And I tell them that their parents have raised them to be an engineer, to be a doctor, to be whatever. And now it's, they, they come to Harvard. I've been here for 31 years. Now it's time for them to grow up. And I tell them the way to pick a career is imagine you're going through a midlife crisis. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your kids hate you. They're covered with acne, right? They're rebelling. What's going to make you get out of bed? What's going to give you hope? What's going to float your boat? That is what you should pick as your career. A thing that you love, a thing that, you know, is going to, a, a thing that you love so much that your avocation becomes your vocation. Your hobby becomes your way of life. That, no matter how illogical it might seem, that is what you should choose for your career, no matter what your parents say. Amen. That's a, that's that's one hundred percent what I try to say, just not as eloquently to people. <laughs> no, but you did it. You did it yourself. You know, Professor Gates. When I did your show, and and we'll get to that in a second. Like right before we started to like um, the TV cameras came on, or maybe they were already rolling. You asked me how much agency you think you've had in the decisions you've made in your life, or something like that. To paraphrase, 
how about you? Like, how much agency do you think you've had versus the genetics that have been sort of predetermined for you? Oh, that's a great question. You know, because I always, uh, what David, Chris, what David's alluding to is the fact that I always ask my guests, as soon as we sit down, if they think they've inherited anything from their ancestors, right? Then I ask the same question. You know, our reveals last, what, David? Three, four hours, right? Yeah. I ask them two questions at the end. I say, now that you've been introduced to all of these ancestors whose existence you knew absolutely nothing about and heard their stories, what do you think now you've inherited from your ancestors? And then finally, I said, David, what makes us who we are? Is it our DNA? Is it our nuclear family? Is it our experiences that we're blessed or cursed to, fa- uh, to face what? And um, I think that I was programmed to be a person of the book. I, I, I um, from the time I was born, I love to read, you know, I learned of my mother, God rest her soul. We didn't have Sesame Street. We had Ding Dong School and Romper Room, right? Those were the predecessors to Sesame Street. And we played, she was a housewife, and she was there all day. And we we watched those shows. We made paper mache castles and dolls and all kind of stuff. And she taught me to uh, my letters of the alphabet and then taught me what now they call cursive. We just called it writing back in the day. And, um, and they, both my parents would read books to me and I love to read. And I think it was just inevitable that, um, pursuing a career in literature was just programmed into who I was by the time I was three years old. And that's gotta be a large component of that it has to be explained by DNA. And then I was in such a nurturing environment. My mother made my brother and me feel like we were the most brilliant and most beautiful kids in the whole world. Now, maybe she lied, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but you get hypnotized by that. And they didn't even, she didn't even have to say that. She just made us feel smart. She just made us feel beautiful, made us feel that we could do anything we wanted. You want to be an astronaut, Skippy, you can be an astronaut, you know, whatever, but be a doctor first. (laughs) Did you have the same, did you have the same sort of before and after realization that you're talking about with, with, you know, Dave asking him sort of, before the show starts, before you do the reveal of all the things you've discovered, what he thinks, and then after, did you have that same parallel experience in your life where like, oh, I think I am this person, and then the more I learn about myself, the more I think, oh, I have been influenced? Did that, is, is that something that you experienced as well? Yeah, I'll give you another story. Um, I remember the day it happened. Yale had a program back in the day called Five Year BA, and 12 kids at the end of your sophomore year, you applied, very competitive, and if you got in, you took a year off, like a gap year, though we didn't have that phrase in. And you went to work in what we used to call the third world, which is now the developing world, right? I was 10 in the year 1960. In 1960, 19 African nations became independent. And I memorized the names of those countries, their capital, and their presidents, right? Now, there was no reason to do this. Nobody black in my town cared anything about Africa. You know, (laughs) Africa was someplace they were glad to be away from because our ideas of Africa were conditioned by Tarzan movies and other racist depictions of Africans and and black people. So why in the world would this 10-year-old kid memorize all these um, uh, names of Africans? Nobody knows, but I was just riveted. And we used to get Reader's Digest magazine and Reader's Digest condensed books. And I read this story about this African kid who basically walked across the equator and was saved by some missionaries and then um, 
came to the United States and, you know, went on college. So I wanted to hitchhike across the equator too. So I applied for this program and I got a job because I was pre-med working in the Anglican uh, Mission Hospital in the center of the country of Tanzania, which, as you know, is in East Africa, Dar es Salaam, the great city on the Indian Ocean. And um, it's where Serengeti, it's where the some of the world's greatest game parks are. And I went to work. Uh, the, my, the Gates family are Episcopalians, right? And so the uh, Anglican Communion, it's called, the Worldwide Association of Anglican Churches, pairs a first world diocese with a third world diocese, as we used to say. So, and I told you I grew up in West Virginia. Our sister diocese was the Diocese of Central Tanganyika, which was the old name for Tanzania. So they could just write to them and say, give this boy a, a job working in the hospital. So at the age of 19, and I was, I had only been on an airplane once. You're going to love this. I was <laughs> terrified of flying, right? I was terrified of flying. And I was trying to figure out, could I sail to Africa? Man, you can't. I'd take six months to sail to Tanzania. <laughs> so I just had to suck it up. I prayed, God, let me, let me survive. Now, you know what frequent flyer miles are now, air miles. But then back in the day, and this was, um, in uh, July 1970, uh, air miles were the distance as the crow flies between point A and point B. So I took off at JFK, and my end goal was the Dar es Salaam airport. And there were 11,000 air miles, I'll never forget this, between JFK and, and Dar es Salaam. What that meant is that I could stop anywhere between JFK and Dar es Salaam as long as I didn't go over 11,000 air miles. So you guys ready for this? I, I had a backpack, sandals, blue jeans, you know, a couple <laughs> pairs of underwear, you know, some T-shirts. I took three books with me in that backpack and I had $500 for the year. Oh, and I, and I had four books. There was the Froms. There was a husband and wife who had written a book called Europe on $5 a day. And then it became Europe on $10 a day. Now it's probably Europe on $1,000 a day. But I had a copy of this book. So I flew from New York to London, uh, to Paris, to Amsterdam, to Rome, to Athens, to Tel Aviv, to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, to Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, and then finally to Dar es Salaam over the next six weeks. And I would land, I would get that book, I would go to a youth hostel run by nuns in Paris, for instance. You know, I was eating, in, in France I had a baguette, and some wine and some cheese. You know, I'd go to a park, open some French girl would like want to get to know an exotic <laughs> African-American. <laughs> <laughs> I, by the time I was 20, I turned 20 in that village. Uh, the village is called Kilimatindi. And I actually made a film, my first documentary. I've now made 24 documentaries, not counting Find Your Roots. But the first film I ever made was for the BBC, a series called The Great Rail Journeys. And they... They, um, you, you ride on trains for three weeks with a film crew. And I told them they wanted me to go to Japan. And I've always been interested in Japanese culture. I learned to play Go when I was at Cambridge. I joined the Go Society. Or they wanted me to ride on trains in South America. I said, no, nah, if you let me ride on train, 3,000 miles on trains and end up in Dar es Salaam, and then I can take the, the, uh, uh, internal a rail and go back to the village where I turned 20 years old in September, 1970, I'll do it. 
And the other caveat was that I wanted to take my two daughters who were 12 and 14. And the, they said, you can't take these adolescents. They'll act out and be all crazy. And they sent a producer over to have dinner. We had this formal dinner in our house. And I told my little girls, this is my big opportunity. If you blow it, you'll never get allowance. I'll kill you. You know, like, just call me, yes, daddy. Yes, sir. They go, well, daddy, we'll call you daddy. We ain't going to call you sir. <laughs> and we passed the test. And it was hilarious because the whole conceit of the film, and we didn't rehearse this, was me, the professor of African and African-American studies at Harvard, giving my daughters lectures about our people and the great heritage of black civilization, and them rolling their eyes behind my back and then saying, listen, we ain't got nothing in common with these Africans. We want a big back. We want to go home, man. <laughs> and the Guardian of London, you know, the Guardian newspaper, headline was National Lampoon Goes to Africa. It was perfect because it was really honest. And and it turned out that I was hooked. I, I was hooked. I had a great cameraman named Graham Smith who taught me how to do stand-ups, you know, piece of the camera. They call them in England when you look at the camera like I'm doing now. And and you, you know, you, you tell a little story. Um, news reporters do it every night. And um, I, he taught me how to do that. And and I was hooked and God gave me a second career, which is as a documentary filmmaker. And that is a true blessing. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. It was a dream and an honor to be able to have your team look into my family's history and dig up things that we net we had no idea. So I I'm eternally grateful and and the people that have already reached out to me were like, "Oh wow, I had no idea." They, they have an interesting Korean history that they had no idea. More people are like, "Whoa, your grandfather came to America in the 20s? That's that's <laughs> that's, that's that's crazy." You know, so I love that. You know, I love uh, two of my favorite of your stories was of Sang-young and Sang-young um, is your great grandfather. Right. And that the, the fact that we could reveal he was actually the first person in your family to come to America. He was amazing. In 1920, the beginning of the jazz age, he's chosen by Methodist missionaries to study in the United States. He leaves behind his wife and son in Korea including uh, um, Manhee Young. And after he goes to San Francisco and Sang Young studied at Hendricks College in Arkansas, then at Emory, and then at SMU, Southern Methodist University in Texas. He gets his degree, then goes to Yale to finish his degree. Unfortunately, he got sick. So what did he do? Does he go home? No, he connects with his fellow expatriate Korea and opens a series of Asian-themed businesses, including the Chinese Garden Department at a large store in Detroit, Michigan. 
1931. It's crazy. And you had no idea there were any real entrepreneurs going back. That's almost 100 years ago. And then the sad, the way the story ends, ultimately returns to Korea and he meets a tragic end. He's working with the American military in the wake of World War II. He gets in a car accident. After returning, he's their scout for a boar hunt. American doctors give him first aid, but say they had rules. Get this. They have rules against treating Korean citizens. Is that racist or what? Mm-hmm. And Sang Young, your great grandfather dies a few days, a few days later. And then on your, um, that's on your mom's side, on your father's side, then we found your chokebo. And that's, of course, only 25% of Korean families even have a chokebo, um, according to our scholars. And that, of course, is a written genealogy that allowed us to tie you to one of Korea's most ancient clans, a clan founded by my man, Jung-Pil, over a thousand years ago. <laughs> you know, that's like, Jung-Pil's like a superhero. <laughs> and we were able to trace you back to uh, Chang-Bo-Ko, the legendary mariner and warrior who became a national hero following his death in 840 AD. Now, how many people watching Finding Your Roots would have any knowledge of this? None, zero. Uh, only a couple professors of Korean history, right? But now everybody, everybody does. And, and uh, Chang Bo-Go is still celebrated in South Korea today. And he's been featured in a television series and a film. And the uh, South Korean Navy named a whole class of attack submarines after him. So I want you to reprise his brother's story, man, and make him a superhero. <laughs> <and action> hero. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to be like, "Come on, Chang, you got to you got to reach for reach for the stars here, man. You're not even close to the most famous Chang now. You got you got this to live up to." And and you know, on your father's side, we go back to your estimated 40th great grandfather, Chang Bo Go, who was born circa 788 AD. And I'm giving these. These um, numbers, just so people can be astonished at how deep Korean history goes. And on your mom's side, through your mother's family's chokebo, we connected you to a legendary warrior. And, you know, there's no way to prove these connections because it's legend. But we tell the story of King Arthur, right? Why can't we tell the story of Huang Di, the Yellow Lord of China, who was born two seven? 04 BC. That's great. We Amazing. need to put these legendary heroes in the pantheon of heroes right along with King Arthur, right along with Charlemagne. Now we know Charlemagne was a historical figure, but they're all legendary figures in, in, in different ways. And so I think that there should be a required course for all freshmen called world civilization. And that we would learn sort of the greatest hits of all the world's civilizations, you know? And so um, these guys would be in, the, in that course that I would love to see taught, along with African civilizations from Nubia and, you know, the pyramids and et cetera, et cetera. That would be, that would foster inter-ethnic understanding and inter-ethnic cooperation. And it would fight xenophobia. It would fight anti-Asian sentiment. It would fight anti-black racism, et cetera, et cetera. The gay hero, the people who were gay, the people who were trans, you know, history full of trans people. The, um, we, we need to bring, we need to educate prejudice out of people through the school system. Because what, think about it. Schools are where, schools are where you learn how to be a citizen in a society. 
When I went to school, I know it was the dark ages for you young whippersnappers, but when I went to school, we had to say, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing every day. We had to salute the flag, to sing America the Beautiful. You know, that I still get, I always put my hand over the heart at basketball game. One of my friends, one of the owners of the Celtics, so before COVID, I had to break my rule. I stopped going to COVID, but when Steph Curry was and just broken the three-point thing, I went down there. I had my mask on, but I stood up. And they, when they sing the Star Spangled Banner, I sing it too. I get tears in my eyes. I'm, I believe that we can educate, we can use the schools to educate out prejudice because our country's in a crisis. And you know why? Because people are scared. The planet's under attack by an invisible enemy. People are afraid economically. They don't think that their kids are going to have a better life than they do. They're, they think that all these black people because of affirmative action are taking good white people's jobs and they're demonic politicians who reinforce those fears, those phobias. And we have to join hands and link arms, like Martin Luther King said, across ethnic lines and stand up against these idiots who are anti-American, who are in the name of America, are trying to destroy America, the January 6th people. And we can't let that happen. You know, I, I was, I was going to say, Professor Gates, I think the show does something else and like combats another sort of insidious uh, trend, I feel like, of modern society, which is like this idea, this notion that like existence begins and ends with me and my life. And, and I remember speaking to Chang the day, you know, you must have done the reveal with him. We spoke really late that night and he was <laughs> it was a very like awestruck and humbled version of Dave. And I think like the the sort of the yellow warrior and, and, and like the, the sort of more ancient stuff was one thing. But I think Dave and you can tell me if you feel otherwise, Dave, but like I think imagining the sort of lives of your relatives who were around in the you know turn of the century, the, the 1920s and, and putting yourself in their their shoes like that it's it was a it's like a real cognitive dissonance i think for like people like us these days who are just like well my life is everything and my existence is everything but like to imagine that dave you weren't the first entrepreneur you weren't the first of your family to be like walking this country trying to make a life for yourself like that's the stuff that like really i think i think shakes us and grounds us in something that's like you know the life that i lead is not the be all end all of my family or anything else yeah, absolutely. And I do remember that conversation with you because, you know, I, I felt changed when you find out this extremely privileged information about your ancestors. And I did say in the show, I did say that I feel like I have to be a better individual. I have to be the best version of myself because you're given these opportunities, whether you think you won the genetic lotto or not, you have, if you have, you know, your full, you know, you're, you're healthy and you can do things. You, you can do anything really. I, I genuinely believe that. And when I see my great grandfather come to this country in pretty much the racist South as an Asian man, I was like, man, like I cannot take anything for granted. Like he went through a lot of stuff. He lived through the great depression. He hustled his way from Detroit to Cleveland. He, you know, uh, Professor Gates was like, you think you were the first person to open a store in New York City? I had no idea. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he's like, wrong. You know, your great-grandfather opened a store with your great-aunt, who was at Columbia. I was like, what? On 76 <laughs> in Amsterdam. I was like, I lived right there. I, I had no idea. Like, So when you think about these things, like I was the first, I was like, no, man, you've done nothing new. This is just 
a long story that is continuing and it's my job to do it one better. Yeah. And that these stories of your ancestors, the choices that they made, the decisions that um, they arrived at, the things they achieved, you've inherited them. You just didn't know it. Exactly. They have trickled down the branches of your family tree. And so you're playing out things, patterns that exist in your own uh, genealogy. And the question that I asked, I, I asked David then, and Chris, I'm, I'm interested in your take and David's yours too, is how can these stories be lost? You know, when I started this series, I thought only black people didn't know their genealogy. And that was so naive. Turns out nobody knows. People know their grandparents, maybe their great grandparents. That is it. They don't know anything else. Everything we show people just knocks them flat. How can these stories, how could you have an ancestor who went to Yale, even if he's at Yale five minutes, that, you know, <laughs> and you not know about that or that he got a degree at SMU or at Emory? How could you not know about that? What's the answer to that question? I, I mean, uh, for me, I think the generous answer is to say, like, there are these, you know, and Dave talks about it on the show, you know, there are these painful histories and you can see that they sort of elicit this pain and our parents are a little reticent to talk about them. So we don't ask. I think the less generous view professor is really like, I'm a self-absorbed American kid and I like, I don't give a shit about what happened before I was around. Like, that's probably the real truth, you know, and, and, and Dave's revelation and having these conversations with Dave and it, it is an absolute gift. I, I was like overwhelmed with jealousy to see like the book of knowledge he had. Like it made me also want to, to know more, but you know, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear what Dave says, but I, I also have a question just of like, do you think, well, let's hear what Dave has to say about this. I don't know. I, I, I actually think about this all the time. That question, uh, Professor Gates asked me, it's like, the, the, what agency did I actually have? And I don't know, because when he showed me my father's first menu and from 1973, I wept. <laughs> it was awesome. That too. didn't make the edit because I was not prepared to see, you know, I, I think like when I create a menu and how it looks and the aesthetics and how it's laid out, like we're just talking about a menu. That's me. That's like, you know, coming from my brain. I own that. That's me. But when I saw my dad, who I had no idea had a steakhouse, you know, a prime rib steakhouse in Washington, D.C., 1973, and the way it was laid out meticulously and the way it was the, all the ingredients and all the beverages, I was like, that's exactly how I would have written a menu. That messes with your head in, in a good way because it ties me to my dad in ways that I never thought was possible. On the same hand, I thought all of my entrepreneurial spirit and my hustle came from my father. I was dead wrong. It turns out my dad were mo mainly like the straight arrows, straight edge Koreans, North Koreans, the Bible folk. My mom's side were the lunatics. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know this. Like that's still like, honestly, every day I think about that because my mom's sick. And I think about it, I was like, oh my gosh, I had it all wrong. I mean, P Professor Gates, you know, in the sort of, in the intro to the show, you know, you sort of give a little overview of how these books are put together. You know, it's it's all of this sort of meticulous research and, and looking back in archival, you know, photos and newspapers. And then you have, you know, genetic analysis, which has become very important to this. So we have all of these tools available to us right now in the modern age to be able to look back and connect ourselves. Do you think that we are more connected to our histories 
than prior generations. Like 150 years ago, were families more cognizant of where they came from and who, you know, their great grandparents or their great great grandparents, or or are we more connected now? We are. That's an excellent question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. We are. Um, we have the tools to connect more fully and more deeply than any generation uh, before us. Because so many records have been digitized, we can analyze your DNA to see what your more distant ancestors were like. I mean, David is, I, I wrote this down, 95.9% Korean. He is like uh, <laughs> uh, ivory soap of Korea, man. <laughs> he got some... Uh, some uh, Japanese sneaked in there, like 0.4% Japanese, and then 3.3% broadly Japanese and Korean. You know, I had to, I, I don't know if you saw the episode with Fred Arneson. Fred's so proud of his Japanese ancestor, right? His ancestor has a museum in Japan. He was a famous actor. I go, Fred, guess what? He wasn't Japanese. He was Korean. Fred almost had a heart attack. He went to school in Japan. From Korea, many elite families in Korea sent their kids to Japan. And when the world war broke out, he just reinvented himself. He said, I'm Japanese. <laughs> and that's the way it was. And he had no idea. Um, 150 years ago, you were closer to the oral tradition, I think, in many families. People would say, let me tell you the story of our pioneer ancestors and blah, blah, blah. But all that's been lost. So as I said, I thought only African-Americans didn't know their family history because slavery was designed. Slavery was an instrument of, of oppression designed to convince a human being that they were a piece of property. And what, how do you do that? You take away their names. You take away their relation to their mother. Take away their relation to their father. Frederick Douglass writes in his first chapter, the, the way that he knew he was a slave, because nobody could tell him his birthday. He said white kids knew their birthdays. Enslaved kids didn't. That's terrible. I mean, I have my students. I'll be lecturing about Frederick Douglass here at Harvard in a couple of weeks. And I always come to class and I'll say, what, how did Frederick Douglass say that you knew who was a slave? What did he say was the worst thing about slavery? And somebody will say, because you could be beaten. Some, you know, rape, you know, beatings, rape, lynching, they're horrible, right? But that's not the first thing Frederick Douglass says. He says, I knew I was a slave because the white boys knew their birthday and I didn't know my birthday. That's a very subtle form of oppression, a way of taking away your um, humanity and not being able to recount stories about your ancestors, which are ennobling, empowering. Just think, David, if you had known that you had these entrepreneurs, right? The guy, I mean, I, I love this story. The guy goes, I mean, I'm making this up. He goes to a department store in Detroit and he said, you know, I got to support my family. I need a job. And they go, well, you know what? We are thinking about opening a Chinese garden department. Hmm. You know anything about gardening? Go, oh, yes. I'm an expert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a master of Chinese gardening. I'm a master. <laughs> I'm a master. They said, well, I thought you said you're Korean. He said, ish, Korean ish. I got some Chinese in there. <laughs> I'm whatever, you, whatever, whatever the department store needs. I'm whatever you need me to be. And when he left that interview, he went straight to the Detroit Public Library, got all the books on Chinese gardening. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're so right, Professor. On the, you know, I have a close friend, Dave, and I have worked with a guy who works in sort of coffee traceability. 
in Rwanda. He's a he's he's a, a refugee of the of the genocide, and he talks about exactly what you're saying: the lack of identity, of not knowing where you, who you are when you were born, is actually like one of the most powerful forms of oppression. Just not being able to have pride in in who you are, where you come from. And he links it to this notion of traceability. Traceability isn't just so that like that bag of coffee at Starbucks, you can say it's your chef or whatever. It's so that the farmer now feels like this belongs to me. This is something that ha- that has an identity that can be verified. And yeah. I-, I think like that's that's it's so important. You know, it's not just about sort of like building that kind of intercultural understanding. But like I think for Dave and for for many Asian Americans, we just sort of assume and I'm sure for many black Americans, too, it's like the past is impossible. We can have no idea. I won't ask. And there's no there's no reason to know it. But finding out you know, I know it gave Dave a tremendous amount of pride. He says it on the show. He says he's never used the word proud to describe his family. And that, that was, that was eye-opening for me, having known this guy forever already. Like that, that really was meaningful. Being able, and David, this is part of uh, my fascination with, with your biography. You stood up to your father. Your father wanted you to be a professional golfer. You were enormously talented. And you just said, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and if I had told my father I was going to be a chef, <laughs> he'd check me into the <laughs> asylum, you know, like no way. And being able to find your passion, the thing that you love, the thing that you want to study night and day, the thing that fuses your hobby with your work, your avocation, as I said earlier, with your vocation and having the courage of your convictions to say, I might go bankrupt, but I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm not going to die. I might fail, but I'm not going to die having not tried. That is the ideal pursuit of an education, the ideal end of an education. That is how, if you're lucky, you can choose an occupation. Unfortunately, for economic reasons, so many people don't have that luxury. But I tell them, roll the dice. You know, do it. You only come through once. The Bible says you get three score and ten. You know, and you and when you're dead, my father's favorite expression was... <laughs> He's so funny. My father's favorite expression was, boy, when you're dead, you're dead for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. And so you got to go for it. And you went for it. And look what happened. Gold. Man, I I love talking to you, Professor Gates. I could just listen. Chris, we should take back our Harvard bashing and <laughs> okay. apply for Harvard. Actually, I was gonna I was gonna ask a really let me ask the stupid question. Cause cause Dave and I just did this most inane of podcasts where we were talking about all these different college towns. Professor, you have between your 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 school that you attended, where you've earned your degrees, where you've taught, and your 59 honorary degrees, what's the best uh, college town for living? Mm-hmm. The best college town for living. Yeah. Well, it depends on your personality. You know, my daughters are 40 and 38. And um, my daughter, Maggie, went to Concord Academy. It was a famous prep school. Caroline Kennedy went there. Drew Faust, the first female president of Harvard, went there. And many of the cool uh, women I went to school with at Yale had gone there. And I wanted my daughter to go there. And she went there and then went to Wesleyan in, in Middletown, Connecticut. And for her, that was ideal. You know, that's where she she wanted to go. My younger daughter went to Spelman in Atlanta, all black women's college, very famous. She wanted an urban experience. She wanted to be with other black women. She then transferred her senior to NYU. She likes New York, where she lives now. So it depends on your personality. But for me, 
when I went to New Haven, I loved it. I, you know, I grew up in a town, as I said, a paper mill town with 2,000 people. New Haven had 125,000 people, I think, when I got there in 69. That was like New York to me. You know, that was Paris and London. It was the biggest place I had, I had ever lived. But I think as a professor, if you ask me, where I have enjoyed most living and raising a family, I'm now married for the second time. My wife's daughter has a grandson who's playing in the, they had to shut the door so we, we couldn't hear him. Um, she's Cuban. She was a professor at the University of Havana for 25 years. And I was making a, one of my favorite series is called Black and Latin America. And one hour is on race in Cuba. One hour on, is on race in Brazil. One hour is on black people in Mexico and Peru. Most people don't even know Mexico and Peru had black people, you know, <laughs> had slaves. And one is on Haiti and the DR. Many Americans don't know Haiti and the Dominican Republic on the same island. <laughs> and the Dominican Republic got its independence from the independent Republic of Haiti. Haiti, of course, is the first black republic in the history of the world. It was, um, it's the first time enslaved people rose up against their masters and defeated them. The Haitians defeated the greatest army on earth, the army of Napoleon Bonaparte. They kicked that army in the butt and they became, uh, on January 1st, 1804, the independent nation of Haiti. It was called Saint-Domingue. Um, that's what the French called it. Uh, before it was the richest colony in uh, the history of the world up to that time because of sugar. And the Haitians, um, you know, rose up and, and, and declared their, um, declared their, uh, independence and they, and they fought for it. They fought for it gloriously. Now I can't remember what, what, where the sentence started. Can you remind me why I'm telling <laughs> I was you? About- your, no, no, I love it. I love it because Dave and I picked, Dave and I picked Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, I remember now. I remember now. It, and it's, um, the, my favorite university town. Mm-hmm. And without a doubt, it is Cambridge, Massachusetts. My wife and I, that's why I got into that diversion. My wife, who's upstairs in her study right now, she's a research fellow at Harvard. And we live in Harvard Square. We have a lovely home. I can walk to campus. And I love the magic of Cambridge. And there's so many colleges and university in the, in the Boston area that it's like the fountain of youth. And I, I, I particularly love that. But I'm a Yaley, remember, who teaches at Harvard. I didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> I'm a Yaley through and through and a Canterbridgean from the other Cambridge, the real Cambridge, the first Cambridge. <laughs> but I love, um, I love Harvard. It's, it's let me uh, grow and thrive and, you know, branch out into the second career. And people are proud of me here. And, you know, and uh, I, I owe a lot to this place. It's a great place for a person like me. I'm entrepreneurial. I have multiple interests, academic interests, professional interests, and it makes a place for a person like me and, and it doesn't try to confine me in or pigeonhole me. And, and that's a blessing too, you know? Well, Chris, I think it, I think if we were as uh, intel- intelligent and well-read and well-traveled as Professor Gates, we'd also like Cambridge. Yeah, I, I think the first the first guest of the history of the show who can smack talk one Cambridge to the other Cambridge. <laughs> well, you, you know, when you go to Oxford or Cambridge, you see what Yale and Harvard were pretending to be. They even uh, they there is a, a dorm at Yale, which was built during the Great Depression. 
They sent an architect to Oxford or Cambridge, no, to St. John's College at Cambridge. And when they built it, I swear to God, what I'm about to say is true. They built in the dip that had accrued over hundreds of years from feet, you know, going up and down this staircase. They built it like that to look old, a fake patina, man. You know, and you go, wow, boy, this is, you know, when they found that Harvard and Yale, Cambridge was hundreds of years old already. You know, Cambridge is 800 years old, man. That's serious. That's incredible. incredible. It's incredible. Well, you guys, if you got a promise, if you're coming to Boston, you got to let me know. You can have dinner here. We're going to have black beans and rice and pork and fried plantains. That is a staple of a Cuban household. Oh, we are coming. We are coming for that for sure. As long as you bring the kimchi. I'm, d- I'm down. I'm happy to feed you anytime, Professor Gates. It's always an honor. But I have to show you something. Now, I- I've never, ever revealed the contents of this closet to any uh, journalist, any podcast, any interview. But I'm, I was looking forward to this. This is my hot pepper closet. Wow. All of this is nothing but chili peppers. And speaking of Rwanda, I'm gonna show you, I'm a man of my word. Your friend talked about traceability. Well, you can trace this. This is Akabanga oil, man. This is nuclear. This is like ghost pepper on steroids. Wow. (laughs) A little drop in some rice and then you got it. The trick of hot peppers, you know, is bulk. You have to be able to absorb it. You can't just drink this. You die. You know? <laughs> this is one of the great flexes of all time. The, the hot sauce cabinet. Unbelievable. From Africa, from Asia. When I hear about a new one, I order it. My wife said, no more peppers. Just the other day. And I went like this. Okay. <laughs> anyway, this has been great, guys. I love you guys. David, it was an honor. I, I, I said this, uh, Chris, when we ended, I reached across my, you know, my table used to, pre-COVID was three feet in diameter, now it's six feet. But I stood up and I said, David Chang, thank you for the honor and the pleasure of allowing me to introduce you to the amazing ancestors on your family tree. And I say that from my heart to you again this afternoon. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Professor Gates. Thank you so much. Well, that's probably the, the the least amount we've ever spoken in a podcast, and I couldn't be happier about it because Professor Gates is dropping. What an amazing storyteller. You would think this guy like was an Emmy winner, documentarian, NES. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. would think, wow, this guy's so fucking smart. He should have won a Genius MacArthur Award. And you're like, oh, he did. <laughs> you would think, oh, this fucking guy should win multiple. He's a guy that like people give honorary doctors to. <laughs> and he did. You yeah, know. I love that. I love that he has got fifty nine of them. That's just I'm never like gonna every- get. I'm never gonna get one. Not even my culinary fucking school will give me one. <laughs> my, yeah, anyway, man. He's, thank he's you, amazing. Professor Gates. Go check out. He's featured in again the Frederick Douglass and Five Speeches soon on HBO, and he has contributed to the first comprehensive collection of essays by Zora Neale Hurston. Check that out. Take it easy, guys. Give us five stars. Bye.